Okay, so this recording is meant to be a companion for the notes, so it would be best if you are going through the notes while you're listening to the recording. We're going to start on slide 93 of the gastrointestinal system notes, so talking about the um, hernias in the intestines. So the, the hernia notes can be a little bit confusing if you go through it um, without any background, so let's just be clear about something. A true hernia uh, is the first definition you see on slide 93, where you have it's usually some kind of opening that already exists and there's been some weakening of the muscles that surround it and the opening gets bigger and weaker. So essentially what that can do is it can cause an eventual protrusion of the stuff that's behind that particular opening um, outward. And so that's the relevance here with the intestines. If you skip to slide 94 really quick, what you see there is a, an inguinal hernia. And we'll get to what that is shortly, but uh, the relevant part here for the intestines is that if a hernia is big enough, then um, then what's behind it, in this case the, the small intestine, can bulge outward. Now that will typically happen only in a, in a small number of cases, or at least the bulge uh, being big enough that it's a really substantial issue, but that is the underlying um, the underlying concern here, because if, if you're looking at that picture on slide 94, and uh, a section of intestine bulges out and loops outward, it can actually become strangulated if it's a severe case. So we'll jump back to slide 93 again for a second. Um, so again, a hernia is, is, a, is that kind of weakening um, and protrusion through what is usually an already existing opening. So in the abdomen, the two common ones that we'll be talking about would be uh, around the umbilicus, so an umbilical hernia, uh, and in the inguinal region, about the inguinal canal, which is what you saw in that other picture. Um, and that's largely the one we'll discuss um, in, in today's lecture. Um, so briefly first on the, on the umbilical hernia, um, that's going to look like around the belly button, around the umbilicus, uh, like um, the belly button is bulging outward. Okay, so same kind of idea as you have with the inguinal hernia where it's an opening that already exists, uh, but there's a weakening of the muscular wall that supports it uh, and a, a possible protrusion of, of the intestinal contents outward. So in the case of an umbilical hernia, umbilical hernia excuse me, yeah, it's, it's more common in uh, during pregnancy uh, for, for pregnant females uh, and uh, the weakness that occurs can persist post-pregnancy. Um, and also for your overweight or obese patients that have more mass in the abdomen in behind with you know accumulated abdominal fat um, and extra weight carrying uh, in that region, and then they can have a weakening of the umbilicus and bulging outward. So again, in a lot of cases, unless the, the bulge is really, really significant, um, then it's more an aesthetic thing than anything else, and so it's not really necessary to be surgically corrected. Um, that's also a case with a lot of mild umbil or, um, inguinal hernia. So let's talk about what that is um, next. Um, now I'm going to bounce around a little bit because the other topic on this uh, on these next couple slides is a sports hernia or athletic hernia, um, which is not really a hernia at all. Um, it does happen to be found in a very similar location to the inguinal hernia, but a sports hernia, um, it, the other name for it is athletic pubalgia, P-U-B-A-L-G-I-A. -A. So um, essentially a pain in the pubic region, usually of an athlete, and that's going to relate to the mechanism of injury. But it's important to remember that a sports hernia really is not a hernia at all. So I'm going to mostly discuss the, the uh, inguinal hernia first, 
and then we'll flip back and, and compare um, what's uh, what's called sports hernia uh, and, and show the anatomical differences. So inguinal hernia first. The inguinal hernia is, is a weakening of the inguinal canal. Uh, which is why inguinal hernias exist more, much more frequently in men than women, um, because although both have um, some semblance of an inguinal canal, um, in men you have the spermatic cord that runs through the inguinal canal and down into the scrotum, and so you have what is essentially an obvious opening that can become weakened. Uh, and so um, the, the risks that lead to, uh, to an inguinal herniation, uh, I mean, one, as you might expect, it gets more common as you get older. Okay, we're on slide 95 now. Um, more common as you get older, uh, more common as you develop weakness. Um, it can also be uh, acquired. Uh, and so, again, there's a risk with, um, with obesity, uh, risk with pregnancy. Uh, and then anything else that, that uh, either really acutely or chronically over a long period of time repetitively creates a lot of pressure in the abdomen. So there is a relationship uh, between uh, heavy lifting, for example, uh, and development of, of inguinal hernia, um, violent coughing. Um, it can also be due to uh, you know surgical incision in the in the area, uh, traumatic injuries as well. So um, the the relationship is is significant between the you know repetitive or forceful uh, pressure buildup of the abdominal cavity and the weakening of the inguinal canal and development of, of, of inguinal hernia. So if you skip forward to slide 96, there's a little bit, of, a few stats here. So inguinal hernias uh, account for about 75% of all hernias, so it's it's pretty significant uh, and affects about 2% of men in, let's say, North America. Um, so the to understand the inguinal hernia, again, um, you have to kind of understand some of the anatomy there. So um, what you have, again, is a is that, that inguinal canal that is the space for the spermatic cord to be able to exit the, exit the abdomen and head downward into the scrotum. Uh, so if you have a weakening of that area, uh, then the potential is that um, abdominal contents can bulge outward. So usually in the early stages, uh, what this looks like is kind of a, a mild bulging, all right? So uh, essentially, it, it's, it's, it can be palpated or it can be observed visually. Um, if you put your finger kind of in the inguinal region and, and have, have the person cough, you'll see you'll feel a bulging outward into your fingers. Or if you can just look at that region and have them create some pressure, so, you know, valsalva maneuver, build up abdominal pressure or cough, you'll see this bulging uh, little region in the, in the inguinal Oh, sorry, bulging area in the inguinal region, and that would be indicative of a developing hernia. What you see in that picture, again on slide 94, is a real significant herniation. So that's the risk here as it relates to intestines, is that if there is a, a real significant uh, herniation, then intestinal contents can bulge outward uh, and literally go outside of the of the abdomen and potentially become strangulated as they, uh, as they travel out and, out and back in. So in a case like that, of course, that's going to be a surgical correction. We'll talk about that um, in a, a couple of minutes of what that entails. Um, but it's usually quite successful. Um, prior to that, um, a hernia um, it may or may not be painful while it's developing. Um, but when there is pain, it's usually in the location where the hernia is, of course, so in the inguinal 
region. Uh, but, but you have to also know that it can also radiate uh, to other places. So it can radiate further down the groin. Uh, in the case of males, it can radiate right down to the testicles. Uh, it can radiate into the into the other, you know, higher in the abdomen um, and into the thigh or, or even around towards the back as well. So when we're talking about a true hernia there, an inguinal hernia, um, the, really the only way to manage it is uh, surgical correction. So um, there used to be cases where it was done as a preventive measure, but it's really not recommended anymore. Um, it's only done in cases where it exists and it needs to be repaired because it's painful or uh, there's a real significant uh, herniation of you know, abdominal contents outward and might become problematic. Um, so it's things like that. The minor ones you know, can usually be tolerated for, for some time. And there's a few different ways that the surgical uh, correction can be done. Um, but it, it, it's usually, it can either, excuse me, it can either be done open or laparoscopically. It usually involves uh, something to patch up that, that space. So like a mesh kind of a, kind of a thing to, that, that is attached in there uh, to shore up that tissue. Uh, and um, with adequate rest after the surgery, it's usually quite successful. So let's go back to uh, the first slide about hernia again on 93 and have a brief little detour into uh, sports hernia. Because as, um, as RMTs, um, there's a reasonable likelihood that you're going to see some of this, uh, especially because of where we live and it's so common in, uh, in hockey players especially. So <laughs> let's talk about this because it is not a hernia right again it's athletic pubalgia so pain at the uh, at the pubic bone so what it really is um, and there's no picture about bony anatomy in the notes because it's supposed to be about hernias but um, but the pain in in this uh, in this condition uh, is basically right at the pubic bone right at the pubic ramus so it's going to be a little more inferior than your location for the uh, for the true inguinal hernia. It's gonna be down a bit farther, um, but right on the bone, uh, and that's one of the hallmarks of it. Is that if you palpate the the pubic ramus itself, it's actually gonna be tender to the touch. So there's some proposals on what is actually the anatomy that this involves. Um, in that uh, you know there is some weakening of the of the wall of the inguinal canal, and that's partly why it's been classified you know it's been called in the past sports hernia but the key thing here is there there is no detectable bulging hernia like the hernia that we were discussing with the inguinal hernia right. so <laughs> sports hernia <clears throat> what we think it has most to do with uh, is that if you think of the um, the uh, the pubic region and with, if you think about the pubic symphysis and, and the pubic bones that, uh, that flank it on either side there's muscles attached to both sides of that, superior and inferior. So above it, you have the abdominal muscles, and in particular, uh, the rectus abdominis muscle. Uh, and then you also have insertions from uh, the conjoint tendon, which is internal oblique and transverse abdominis, as well as some, uh, some elements of the uh, external oblique as well. And underneath it, or sort of lateral and inferior to that, you have some adductor muscles, and in particular, the adductor longus. So if you think of um, the muscles above, again, like rectus abdominis, and the muscle below in adductor longus, they basically create this kind of uh, push-pull relationship and almost um, uh, use the, um, the pubis as like a fulcrum. Uh, and so that kind of leads to the, uh, the injury mechanism that's most typical uh, for, for sports hernia. 
Uh, it's typically some combination, either a really acute forceful one or commonly um, this kind of slow, chronic, repetitive uh, overuse kind of, kind of injury uh, that usually involves um, either hyperextension uh, or twisting, uh, and so it happens pretty often when it, it, when athletes are uh, running or twisting or cutting, um, and so that makes it particularly common in uh, in hockey players. Again, obviously not running, but with the with the me uh, mechanics of a of a skating stride being kind of lateral uh, and extension, uh, it makes sense. Um, it's also pretty common in soccer players and football players with the running and kicking. <laughs> but essentially, what we think is happening is that there is a relative uh, um, discrepancy in, in the push-pull relationship of those muscles across the pubis, uh, and, and what gets the finger pointed at it quite frequently is uh, relative weakness of the abdominal muscles. Um, and so, essentially, <laughs> as you get this um, abnormal pulling from uh, from the adductor muscles, you get pain at the origin of the adductor longus, which is... Um, just kind of lateral and inferior to the to the pubic symphysis. So the the things that differentiate again that and a true inguinal hernia, um, you can test it, right? So um, the, it would be there would be different aggravating factors where an inguinal hernia is going to be aggravated by things that build pressure. So uh, coughing, uh, laughing. Um, bending, uh, heavy lifting, things that are going to create pressure and, and aggravate that bulge. That makes sense for an inguinal hernia. Um, there are some things that are, that are present in the detection of a sports hernia, athletic pubialgia, that, uh, that don't necessarily, well, would, would not necessarily aggravate uh, an inguinal hernia. So um, sports hernias, you know, it, it'll typically be, uh, or the reason that somebody typically is getting it looked at uh, is because it's aggravated by their sport. So it's aggravated by the, the same kind of mechanisms that cause it in the first place. So you're, uh, you're running, you're cutting, you're twisting, your um, uh, sit-ups in particular um, uh, will, will aggravate it as well. So if you're trying to evaluate the, the difference between them, um, the, the, the real true way to, to diagnose a, a athletic pubalgia involves <laughs> imaging. Uh, so you would need uh, MRI essentially of the groin. <clears throat> but you can do a good job in a physical exam of trying to, to narrow this down. So in an athletic pubalgia, the athlete is going to describe this pain that feels kind of like deep, achy pain deep in the groin. Um, it'll be, of course, aggravated by those, those uh, athletic movements, the running, the cutting, the, the kicking in particular. Um, it will be alleviated by rest, which makes sense. Um, and the, one of the key things is the palpation. So if you get, in, get good in your palpation skills and understand your anatomy, uh, and you can palpate right at the pubic ramus, where the attachment side of those muscles is, and you're going to feel tenderness at the origin of the adductor or the insertion of the rectus abdominis, uh, and that's pretty indicative that it might be athletic pubalgia versus uh, versus a, a true hernia. Again, no bulging in this case makes it uh, makes it more obvious as well. Um, <clears throat> another thing that you'll get with uh, with athletic pubalgia that you probably won't get with a uh, with an inguinal hernia is if you test <clears throat> a resisted hip 
a deduction, right? So um, you uh, have the athlete do um, adduction, of course, using the adductor muscles, which are often affected, and uh, and they'll get pain again at the uh, at the origin of the adductor longus, and so that's pretty indicative of it. Um, it also uh, one of the classic tests for that is um, a resisted sit up. So you have them set up for a sit up like motion, either with some weight or you push against them, uh, and it'll elicit that pain at the pubic ramus as well. So something that you'll probably see again because so common in uh, hockey players. I can tell you um, from clinical experience that uh, it usually, uh, cases like that usually are going to involve some uh, other hip dysfunction at the same time, which um, which probably, frankly, is, is contributing to the development of this in the first place, but also does sometimes make... Um, make uh, treatment and rehab of it a little bit trickier but make sure that uh, in the clinic you're looking for the hip dysfunction that goes along with that as well okay so let's move on to slide uh, 100 uh, we're past hernias we're going to talk about the appendix so we should know where the appendix is hopefully uh, it's in the lower right quadrant lower right quadrant excuse me um, you see that on slide 101 next um, it's uh, it's the full name is the vermiform appendix because it vermiform means uh, worm-like, so it's a little projection <clears throat> that projects off the uh, the cecum, so the the first portion of the large intestine, right after the connection to the uh, um, to the ileum to the small intestine. So <clears throat> appendicitis is really the big thing that we're that we're concerned with here. Uh, so inflammation of that appendix, which is relatively common, you know, stats on the slide one hundred there. Um, say 9% lifetime risk for, uh, for males and 7% for females, and that's a reasonably significant number of cases. Um, so before that, we have to have a quick understanding of what the appendix actually does. Um, it was for a long time thought that appendix was vestigial, so evolutionary remnant that doesn't do anything of real significance. Uh, we actually have a, a little bit better understanding now, and we think that um, what it does is it stores a small amount of, uh, of bacteria, so normal flora, normal flora for the gut, uh, which can be helpful in cases where you need to repopulate the gut. So if there's been uh, diarrhea or um, patient has undergone a round of antibiotics or something of that nature, uh, and it can help repopulate the gut. And the reason, or the way that this was found out was that um, there were cases of uh, study of uh, hospitalized patients with um, C. difficile infection, so an intestinal infection that's hard to get rid of, and those who uh, had a, an intact appendix had an, a relatively easier time recovering and repopulating the gut uh, as compared to those who had previously had their appendix removed uh, due to a case of appendicitis. So anyway, interesting connection there. Uh, but let's talk about what appendicitis actually is. Um, if you think about the anatomy of the appendix, it's basically um, a little kind of again tube worm-like structure with one opening. So it's got one entrance and exit, um, and uh, and that is uh, to the cecum. Um, so I mean, technically, most cases we really don't exactly know why they're caused, but the basic the basic anatomy uh, and function of this is is that. Um, something is likely obstructing that one opening and uh, the one um, entrance and exit to the appendix. So that could be something like um, a stone. So it could be 
uh, it could be a gallstone that has been released up uh, um, uh, from the gallbladder and has made its way all the way down uh, and got stuck in the appendix eventually. Um, it could be a fecalith, which is, uh, you know, poop stone. It's a, it's a um, uh, basically a thickening, hardening of the contents of the of the stool that uh, that has gotten stuck in that opening. Um, it could also, in theory, be you know um, uh, small hard things that are in the food that haven't been digested, like seeds or or, or things like that. So <clears throat> basically, the idea is if um, something gets stuck in that opening um, and obstructs that only exit to the appendix, then pressure starts to, to build up inside the appendix. Because normally it would have to release pressure because there's living bacteria in there. And so if you obstruct the only exit to the appendix um, and there is now inflammation there, then uh, the, the subsequent inflammation and the presence of the bacteria that are always living there doing their thing is gonna start building up pressure inside the appendix without the ability to release it. So that the, the problem there is of course initially gonna be pain and that makes sense in the context of what a case of this normally looks like and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and the, uh, the major complication that can arise uh, is that, be again, because you have this blockage, because you have um, some inflammation and a buildup of pressure with nowhere for it to go, it starts stretching the appendix, which is, again, what initially leads to the pain. But the problem is that if you continue to stretch the appendix without any release valve, uh, then you eventually will compress the walls of the appendix due to that distension. Uh, and when that happens, you're not only stretching the walls of the appendix, but you're compressing the blood vessels that, uh, that, that feed that living tissue of the appendix itself. And so effectively what you now have is, a, is a, um, an ischemic situation. So you're compressing the blood vessels to supply that tissue, you cause ischemia. If that pressure is not released, then we all know what is coming next. And if you have prolonged ischemia, then you can eventually lead to necrosis. Uh, and that's obviously a problem because if you cause um, necrosis of the, the wall of the appendix, then it can, of course, burst. And that's a big, big problem uh, because if we think about the anatomy of, of where the appendix is and what's outside of it, well, what's outside of it is abdominal cavity and peritoneal membrane, which is supposed to be sterile. And so if you have um, an appendix that ruptures, um, you're going to release the contents of it into the surrounding area, which means uh, you're gonna have chemical irritation of the peritoneum, so chemical peritonitis. Plus, if you remember, we, we said there's bacteria in there, and so you're now releasing bacteria into the peritoneum, which is supposed to be sterile. And that's a nasty situation to have. Uh, because that bacteria can run rampant and spread wildly and quickly. Um, and uh, actually about 50% of cases of, of bacterial peritonitis uh, can be fatal. So it's, it's definitely something that you want to avoid. So uh, appendicitis, you want to manage it. Um, and the fix is surgical. You remove, you remove an inflamed appendix before it bursts. Uh, because if it does, again, um, it can be a really nasty situation. So let's go back to slide 103 and look at um, what that presentation typically is. Um, you've, you're probably already familiar with, again, the, the classic you know, pain location. Um, it's in the right lower quadrants. Um, technically, cases of, uh, of appendicitis actually start periumbilical, sometimes even epigastric, uh, so where you feel stomach pain, but most often periumbilical, so around the umbilicus. 
<laughs> and then they'll rapidly it'll migrate and stay down in the the right lower quadrants so spe specifically uh, at what's called McBurney's point which is um, if you find the ASIS uh, and go about uh, inch and a half or two inches um, superomedial, superomedial, so up and medial. Uh, that's where McBurney's point is, and that's directly overlying where the appendix usually is. And so the pain will sit right there. Um, <clears throat> combined with the because it's because it's uh, inflammatory condition and, and there's bacteria involved, um, the uh, um, the patient is likely to also experience nausea, vomiting, uh, and a low-grade fever as well. The pain tends to, to worsen um, rather rapidly as this, as this gets worse, although it can initially develop a little bit slowly. Uh, so when somebody has a, an, uh, an inflamed appendix, anything that, that increases abdominal pressure is going to aggravate that pain, make it worse. Uh, so any kind of movement that involves the abdomen that includes bending, walking, um, pressure buildup like laughing or coughing, um, those are all going to aggravate the, the pain of appendicitis as well. Um, clinical testing is usually the, the so sorry, um, reliance on history and a clinical exam or physical exam is going to be the, the best way to, to screen most of these. Um, the classic test for appendicitis, if, if physical exam, is rebound tenderness. You may have done this in class, uh, where basically you, uh, because the the various abdominal organs are connected through the peritoneum, um, the rebound tenderness test is you put some pressure into the abdomen away from the site of pain. So at another quadrant in the abdomen, not directly over the painful spot, <laughs> and then you release. Uh, and as you release, the the pain will be reproduced in that right lower quadrant that will be a positive test and be highly suspicious of appendicitis um, <clears throat> so that's the kind of classic test that most people do uh, the uh, there is a newer test uh, called the pinch and inch test which is suggested to be maybe a little bit more comfortable for those patients and and still um, still uh, effective at, at uh, being relatively diagnostic for uh, for appendicitis and so basically, uh, in the pinch and inch test, you <clears throat> go right over McBurney's point uh, and you, you grab kind of a fold of the abdominal skin, right? And then you pull it up. So you basically lift it up away from the uh, abdomen and then you let it go. Uh, and as the, as the skin kind of recoils back towards the, uh, to the abdomen, uh, it'll reproduce or intensify that pain at uh, McBurney's point, And that would be your, your positive test to be suspicious of appendicitis. Okay, so again, uh, if it's if it's detected early enough and it's uh, surgically removed, which is uh, typically done laparoscopically, then prognosis is really really good. Um, if not, if it's uh, if the if the appendix bursts uh, and you and you create uh, peritonitis, uh, then you the the um, the prognosis uh, gets quite bad really quickly. So you really do want uh, to have that emergency uh, surgical removal as quickly as possible. Um, let's, uh, let's, oh, sorry, uh, actually just one quick, one other quick thing. Um, the, um, the pain of appendicitis as it continues to swell and, and balloon and, and distend the appendix, it tends to r remain rather intense. Interestingly, if the appendix 
bursts, uh, the pain actually goes away, at least temporarily. But that should kind of make sense because um, now you no longer have that stretching distension pressure that's causing the pain in the appendix itself. Uh, but that uh, it's going to be kind of fairly rapidly um, uh, replaced by a more generalized abdominal pain uh, with peritonitis that indicates something, a problem that's much much more significant. So let's let's move ahead to slide uh, 106 there talking about peritonitis. And again, <laughs> peritonitis is the inflammation of the peritoneum, which is one of our double-layered serous membranes in the body. And this one is protecting um, a good chunk of the uh, of the uh, abdominal organs. So it is a continuous membrane um, that lines the uh, the abdominal cavity and it's supposed to be sterile. Uh, so of course the GI tract as we know has bacteria in it but the peritoneum does not. I mean that's that space is not supposed to have bacteria in it and so if, if bacteria uh, organisms get in there then they can rapidly reproduce and spread and, and cause a major major problem inside the abdominal cavity. So there are a few other examples of how you can acquire peritonitis other than uh, appendicitis. <clears throat> we'll actually talk about that more in class when we discuss um, pancreatitis because uh, that's a there's no capsule around the pancreas and and uh, and it can lead to peritonitis as well. But we'll talk about that in class. Um, whatever the cause, uh, um, the pain associated with peritonitis is um, generally uh, a little bit more kind of vague uh, and widespread as opposed to the acute pain that you would get with an appendicitis. Uh, but it does tend to ramp up rather quickly as the bacteria reproduce and spread uh, and you get this really more generalized intensifying abdominal pain to the point where the classic presentation of peritonitis as it really um, gets up to its you know, full clinical manifestation is usually described as what's called um, a rigid board-like abdomen. So the, the, you get reflex spasm of the, uh, of the abdominal wall plus some distension from the uh, inflammation that's going to be going on underneath and you get this rigid, uh, painful um, abdomen that's going to involve kind of most of the abdomen um, because you have this spreading infection as opposed to one painful spot, say, overlying something like the appendix. Um, so for, for um, appendicitis being obviously a very significant problem that you want to avoid, uh, the ways that it'll be diagnosed, um, some imaging could be done, um, Barium enema is used sometimes if you're trying to rule out some stuff going on with the uh, uh, with the large intestine, uh, and potentially an abdominal tap. So the other word for abdominal tap is paracentesis, um, and we'll probably use that term again when we talk about uh, ascites uh, in in class. But paracentesis is where you stick a needle into the abdominal cavity, draw out the fluid. In this case, you'd be looking not only fluid, but for the presence of bacteria, which should obviously never be found in the abdominal cavity. Um, so if we skip to slides 108, uh, management for peritonitis, <laughs> the, the, I mean the, the obvious approach here is antibiotics. Um, so it's going to be aggressive antibiotic treatment, probably IV, um, and also to be combined with, um, with actual debridement and, and um, drainage of the abdomen surgically. So going in and cleaning up the, the debris, cleaning up the bacteria, and getting as much out of there as possible while you're concurrently 
aggressively treating it with antibiotics because, again, the prognosis for these cases is not good. Um, the stats on the slide that 108 there show um, a 50% mortality rate, uh, obviously more more um, more dangerous in, in those individuals who have a, a more weakened immune system like older patients. But that's, I mean, those are not good numbers. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a real big problem so that obviously you want to avoid that. Uh, and, and of course, part of the way of avoiding that is, is to, uh, in the case of appendicitis, surgically remove that inflamed appendix before it has the possibility of, of bursting. Okay, so again, we'll touch on that briefly again when we talk about the uh, when we talk about the pancreas later on. Uh, moving on next to slide one hundred nine and the rectum, we have a couple more uh, a couple more topics here. Uh, first one is fairly straightforward: uh, rectal fissure. That's basically a tear. Uh, so you have a tear or an ulceration along the lining of the of the anus. Um, it's usually due to uh, pressure and trauma. So one of the most com the couple most common ways that uh, you can cause this, uh, one is childbirth, um, and the other is uh, is bad constipation. So either you know one really acute traumatic event, or or someone who is prone to to uh, recurrent constipation that is always you know, straining hard to pass. Um, you know kind of. Uh, um, hard stools that can cause tearing of the uh, of the the walls of the anus as it passes through um, so <clears throat> so for the most part um, those things will heal themselves um, over time it takes it takes some time and obviously it's <clears throat> quite painful in the meantime um, but for management of those <clears throat> it's basically um, symptomatic management um, and that includes things like a sits bath, which is something that, uh, you know, for a shallow bath for, for cleaning the perineum, something that's used uh, postpartum as well. Um, and then uh, things that can kind of ease that pain <clears throat> and make it easier for the patient to pass stool in the meantime, because it does take some time to heal. So that means you know, managing, the, the, uh, managing the consistency of the stool through things like the use of laxatives or stool softeners or making sure there's you know, significant, uh, or sorry, there, there's a, um, enough uh, fiber in the diets, uh, things like that. Also, um, you can use emollient suppository. So <clears throat> something that's going to help um, moisten and to some degree uh, lubricate the, uh, um, the anus and, and rectum. So to allow some, some, a little more ease during the time that it's healing. If we jump to the next slide, 111, um, last little uh, possibility here um, that can go along with, uh, with fissures, um, but is also associated with uh, infection in and around the, the anus, so either from the glands or um, present with a hemorrhoid, which is our next topic, uh, are fistulas and abscesses. And so we know what a fistula is. We had a pretty colorful discussion about that in class last week. But um, if you Google, because uh, it's not in the notes, if you Google a picture of a, of a um, rectal fistula, you'll see exactly what the anatomy of this looks like. But basically, in this case, with a fistula, you have um, a tunnel or a, um, a, a passageway connecting the rectum, so from the inside, to the outside, but not at the anus. So it basically kind of flanks the uh, the opening of the anus so it basically means you have a small hole on the outside that's going to be connected through this fistula tunnel to a uh, part of the rectum on the inside so it's it's an inflammatory thing that occurs 
uh, that erodes tissue and basically builds or creates this new passageway as you would expect from any fistula. Um, so those, uh, the, that's uh, basically a surgical correction at the discretion of the, of the doc. Um, they may or may not be uh, corrected. It depends on the cause. It depends on whether it's likely to heal or not. Um, but uh, they, can, they can certainly be, uh, be closed up surgically. Um, but if they're at a risk for recurrence, then they might not even bother to do that if it's not, if it's not actively getting infected. And the last topic, I believe, yeah, for today is uh, hemorrhoids. Um, so hemorrhoids are essentially um, prominent superficial veins uh, that have weakened and are bulging. Uh, so kind of similar to when we discussed um, uh, when we discussed varicose veins in the extremities, um, so bulging, you know, uh, dilated veins, uh, or when we discussed briefly uh, esophageal varices, which we'll do again uh, this coming week. <clears throat> but in this case, again, you have um, veins that are around the, uh, the rectum and anus. Um, there are actually two different kinds, <laughs> depending on <clears throat> where they are. So you have internal hemorrhoids, which are basically inside the body, uh, inside the sort of lining the the rectum, uh, or you have external hemorrhoids, which are outside. <clears throat> and the external ones tend to be uh, more painful because you have they're they're um, they're present in what's more um, painful somatic tissue <clears throat> compared to the internal ones. But both of them being um, weakened, um, uh, bulging, superficial, exposed veins, uh, they are liable to be irritated by uh, passage of stool. Uh, and as we mentioned in class, one of the most common causes uh, of having uh, blood in, uh, on the stool. Um, of course, as we, again, as we mentioned, if somebody has blood in the stool and has no explanation for why, that should, of course, be investigated. Um, but, but statistically speaking, um, hemorrhoids are a super, super common cause of it. Um, risk factors for development, <clears throat> uh, again, as we had a discussion about before, um, weakened, uh, weakened structures, weakened muscles, uh, weakened everything that happens as you get, as you get older. Uh, and so the stat on slide 112 shows you that, uh, I mean, it's kind of estimated that about half of adults over the age of 50 are going to be, have some kind of hemorrhoid. Of course, there's a, there's a spectrum of how, of severity, you know, from mild to a lot more severe in how bad they bulge or bleed. Um, but uh, it does absolutely happen uh, more often as you get older. Um, it is also another one of those conditions that uh, gets aggravated with uh, recurrent uh, strain or increased uh, intra-abdominal pressure. So <clears throat> there is a relationship <clears throat> excuse me, between uh, hemorrhoid development and um, heavy lifting. Uh, things like weightlifting have been thought to, to potentially uh, contribute to it. Um, also, uh, um, patients that have um, chronic constipation, so uh, they're constantly trying to, you know, build up pressure to 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 move difficult bowel movements, um, and they're straining and and potentially weakening um, the walls to support these uh, these um, superficial veins and can cause hemorrhoid formation. Uh, so management is um, is usually symptomatic management, right? It's uh, um, kind of similar to the previous uh, to the previous topic. Um, if they're external, uh, then maybe something like a sits bath to to clean and um, 
uh, and soothe a little bit. Um, topical medications, so hemorrhoid creams uh, for, for the painful um, external ones. Um, and then management of the stool. <clears throat> so um, getting enough fiber in the diet uh, and trying to avoid constipation. So that's you know, maybe stool softeners or laxatives. That is um, you know, managing other components of the diet that might contribute to it. Um, that is you know, watching out for medications that are known to cause constipation, uh, like opioids, things like that. Uh, and again, um, probably trying to <clears throat> relatively uh, try to decrease or manage how often you're increasing the intra-abdominal pressure with things like heavy lifting uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's it for our, uh, our kind of fill-in uh, lecture that we won't cover in class. Uh, we'll pick it up uh, next week with, on slide 115 with uh, gallbladder disorders.